This is the 2007 Florida Christadelphian Bible School. Our speaker this morning is Brother Jeff Jelano of the Simi Hills Ecclesia in California. His subject this week has been, Be Ye Doers of the Word, which is a study in the book of James. This is class number six. The class title is, This and That. We ask Brother Jeff to come forward. What I hope that we've been able to see this week is that sometimes facing the message of the truth requires us to look at our beliefs in a, in a radical and different way. That while we are grateful to those that went before us, we do not base our beliefs on the traditions of men. Our doctrines are founded and based on solid scriptural concepts. And we do well to protect them with vigor. But we need to be sure that we're not becoming entrenched or dogmatic or legalistic in our dealings with the members of our ecclesia. Christ's radical and different message was a message of grace, of forgiveness and inclusion. And working through these concepts in a messy flawed human life is hard and it's sometimes very uncomfortable but that's what we're called to do and that is the message of James I hope we've seen that a, a correct understanding of faith and works can be a motivating and inspiring factor in our spiritual lives we don't believe like, like many modern day Christians that all we have to do is, is believe and we're saved but we also don't fall into the natural human tendency to somehow start thinking that we can earn our salvation by checking the boxes and some eternal checklist of good deeds. Neither extreme is correct, and, and both are dangerous. We need to understand that our lives need to be full of good deeds, but not because we think that we're unfavorable in God's sight unless we do. We need to understand that God chose us and loved us as sinners. And even though we, we were sinners, He loved us so much, He gave His only Son to die for us. Understanding and believing and actually having faith in that simple fact is what will motivate our life, motivate us to fill our lives with good deeds. I also hope that we've come to look at rules and regulations in a little different way. The Scriptures are abundantly clear that rules really have no value in checking the indulgences of the flesh. Although it's a natural reaction for us to want to set rules, we can't regulate righteousness. And regardless of how many rules we make for ourselves and for others, the rules themselves will never stop us from sinning. I hope that we've shown there's only one really true way to control sinful behavior, by transforming yourself from the inside out by connecting with God in an intimate and personal relationship. The only hope we ever have of controlling ourselves. And it's only through effectual and fervent prayer that we can really change things in our lives. Only by confessing our sins to a person that 
we see as acting righteous in an area that, that we are having problems with. We will be able to feel God's power changing us for the better. God's willing and able to perform miracles in the lives of believers. But we have to ask, believing we've received for Him to act. And even the effectual and fervent prayer of a righteous man isn't always answered the way we want. We have to remember that God is more concerned about transforming us through our problems than He is concerned about transporting us out of our problems. It's hard for us not to receive the, the healing or the answer that we want, but the eye of faith sees that God knows best and He is active in our life. I hope we've been reminded that out of the same mouth comes forth bitter and sweet. And these things ought not to be. We talked about that, how the tongue is a small member, but the root and the source of many terrible and wicked sins. My brother said to me yesterday that it's a medical fact that the tongue has more germs. It's the most foul part of the whole body. And that's true in a spiritual sense, isn't it, also? The tongue has a great potential to condemn us. But if you can control the tongue through the assistance of, of, of God, if you can control the greatest sinner in your body, then by, by virtue of controlling the greater, you can gain control over the lesser. The tongue is, is wild and untamed and savage, uncivilized, undisciplined. So we need to turn to God for help in controlling our tongue. True believers speak with a tongue that is under control, under the control of a loving God that wants the best for us. So we looked at some of these, these wonderful themes in James. We have one more class together. And I have about ten more things to say. There are so many different topics I wanted to explore. James talks quite a bit about favoritism and discrimination. So I want to spend a moment today looking at that. Another topic that James teach, treats with much importance is the, the concept of rich and poor. We really can't ignore that message either. James speaks of worldliness and godliness in chapter 4. We want to touch on that too. And I love the section on today and tomorrow we'll go into such and such a city. I want to talk about that. And we'll end up with the same verse we started out with. James' discussion on how we're supposed to treat the fatherless and the widows. So now you understand why I have such an enigmatic title as this and that. Because James is often referred to as the, the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's full of these, these little gems that just can't be left untouched. I don't think I'll probably do any of them justice, but I'm tempted to try not to leave anything undone. So let's begin our discussion on the idea of favoritism and discrimination. James begins chapter 2 with this important topic. He says in verse 1, My brothers, as believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, 
you stand there or, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The message that James points out in several places through his book is, is the importance of applying the Word of God to your everyday life. Remember he said, Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. A great place, I think, for us to apply the Word of God in our lives is in this area of favoritism. As the leader of the Ecclesia in Jerusalem, James' argument is directed towards the special treatment being received by the early Christians to the wealthy. James admonished the church to avoid the divisive distinctions of social class, which can destroy true fellowship. When one group won't associate with another group because they're not of the same social class, how can you ever have real fellowship? Those social distinctions aren't as readily apparent today in our middle-class society. But this concept of favoritism still exists. And I want to look at four different ways that we show favoritism today. First, we show favoritism strictly because of a person's appearance. We often discriminate simply because of the way someone looks. Beauty is very important in our society. And it's, it's very natural, but that doesn't make it right. The tendency is true even from an early age. Studies show that, that infants respond more positively to attractive people than they do to those that are considered homely. But we're no longer children, right? As we mature, we have to learn not to respond with our natural inclination. We have to learn, learn not to respond the way we would naturally react, but to respond in a godly manner. And we know that God doesn't look at the features of the face. God looks at the heart, not the hair color, not the shape of the body. The second reason we show favoritism is because of ancestry. The Dred Scott decision of 1856 reads, but it is too clear for dispute that the African race was not intended to be included and forms no part of the people who framed and adopted the Declaration of Independence. It's been 150 years. And fortunately, a lot of that kind of reasoning has eventually changed. But a lot of it still remains today, doesn't it? There's still discrimination in our country, even after the Civil Rights Movement. And there's still discrimination in our Ecclesia. On paper, we, we believe and teach and confess that everyone of every race deserves to hear the saving message of Christ. But in reality, it doesn't work out that way, does it? 13% of the United States is black. 14% is Hispanic. 5% is Asian. Of the 5,000 Christadelphians, do you think there are 650 black brothers and sisters? 700 Hispanic? 250 Asians? There's a, there's a sociological principle called homogeneity 
that says we're drawn naturally to associate with people who are like us. It's, it's a fact. It's a, it's a physical law. But we don't leave physical lives, do we? We're supposed to live spiritual lives. It's natural to, to gravitate towards those you have a cultural affinity with. But we're called to do something spiritual with these 80 years, not, not something natural. A life that we're called to live is in many ways opposite of what comes natural. So as we mature in Christ, let's reach out beyond our comfort zone and, and try to include people of all races. Because we know that God doesn't look at the color of the skin. We also show favoritism because of people's age. I can tell you right now that in the business world, many companies discriminate against older workers because they usually cost more to pay and they have less years of productivity left to offer the company. And don't even get me started. You, you know enough about the cost of health insurance on older workers. In our society in general, there, there just seems to be a waning level of regard for the elderly. Respect for our elders seems to have been lost on younger generations. In the Ecclesia, it almost seems like it's the opposite. Of course, there are, there are no st- statistics in Christadelphia. We don't even know how many there are. But I can say that in mainline denominations, the average age of members in churches in the United States today is over 60. And we all know many ecclesias that, that find themselves in that, in that same situation. Since brothers and sisters, since human beings tend to cater to their own needs and their own interest in, in worship style and in church activities, the needs and the interests of the youth, especially those that, that currently don't even go to meeting, are neglected. An ecclesia full of young people needs to be sensitive that they're not discriminating against their older members simply because of their age. But Ecclesia full of older people also needs to be aware of the same peril. We might feel more comfortable wearing suits and ties and and singing hymns that were written in the 1800s, but we might also be alienating entire generations of potentially new brothers and sisters. You see, age discrimination goes both ways, and it's, it's wrong either way, because we know that God doesn't look at the age of a person. And the fourth thing I think that we see in favoritism is affluence. The Jews believed in what was referred to as as wealth righteousness. If you're wealthy, then that must mean that God has blessed you. God only blesses the righteous. So therefore, being wealthy is a sign of your righteousness. That's why it was so hard for them to understand why a rich man would have a hard time getting into the kingdom of God. If a rich man, a a righteous man can't do it, how can we? And that that thinking was revived with the Calvinists and the Puritans, and it forms the basis, I think, of the formation of our entire country. America was formed on the belief that, that working hard, 
no matter whether the job is digging ditches or building a business, by engaging in self-discipline, sacrifice and obedience, by depriving yourself of indulgent pleasures, by enduring hardship, by saving what you make, by reinvesting your profits, you can increase your wealth. And in do so, you're acting virtuously, you're acting righteously and godly. And I think that while that's true, the reverse is not necessarily true. Those who have not succeeded by the world's financial standards are not necessarily unrighteous. We all know many wealthy people who give no thought to pleasing the God that created them. Don't we also know many who are dirt poor but thank God daily for everything He's given them? God doesn't look at a person's balance sheet. He doesn't look at the the model of import they drive or the cut of the suit that they buy. And we shouldn't either. Because favoritism and discrimination are not a part of the servant of Christ. Makes a good segue, I think, into the next topic that James spends time with, the rich and the poor. Continue reading in in chapter 2. He says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, thou do well. But if you have respect of persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. God has blessed me with a, with a great job, a job that provides me more money than I need. So I have a special interest in trying to understand what this verse is saying to me. I had to think long and hard about it. And I, I honestly do not believe that James is saying that God dislikes rich people. Abraham, the patriarch of of Israel and chosen of God, was incredibly wealthy. David, a man after God's own heart, was also in a position of wealth. And not even Bill Gates compares with David's son, Solomon. My favorite example, though, is always Job. A perfect example of a man whose, whose faith was not tied to his purse strings. But wealth can be an impediment to faith. Wealth buys things like like good medical care, fine food, services, and comfortable homes. And all of these can tend to insulate us from the turmoil and the hunger and the disease that is the lot of the majority of human race. Wealth makes it easier for us to delude ourselves and deem ourselves self-sufficient. The poor have no such illusions. And therefore, they're more open to God and to His power working in their lives. So I don't think that God dislikes the rich. But I do think that God prefers the poor. Our God is a a God of the poor, a God of the underdog, a God of those who are trodden underfoot. People that rely on their money think of themselves as wise. But the Bible teaches that God hath chosen chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world 
to confound the things which are mighty. Those without status and wealth seem to be the very ones that respond more readily in faith towards the gospel. We live in a a society here in North America that even the poorest are wealthy by third world standards. We live in a society where it's, it's fairly easy to become wealthy. We have to remember that the purpose of working is not to obtain wealth for your own personal gratification. The purpose of working is to obtain wealth so that you can help out those who are less fortunate than yourself. James warns about those who obtain wealth and then exploit the poor, taking advantage of them for the purpose of increasing their own personal wealth. And it doesn't sound pretty, the things that he says. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. In verse 4, he says, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Now sure, maybe none of us are guilty of murdering innocent men. But the exhortation, I think, to those of us who've been blessed with more than we need is clear that we shouldn't hoard it to the hurt of of those around us. We need to be generous and, and give to those that we come across who are in need. It's a, it's a liberating and, and freeing concept that took me 25 years to, to realize that we're not limited in our giving. You're not limited to a tithe. Like every other of the commandments of the law, 10% was just the minimum required of a servant of God. Not the maximum allowed. I've heard a couple stories recently of people who, the year they were married, decided to give 10%. And they decided to increase it 1% every year. A couple that just celebrated their 50th anniversary and give away 60% of all their money. Give until it hurts. Not just until you've met your obligation. You're also not limited to a tax-deductible donation. This, I didn't figure this out till three years ago. Can you, I mean, literally, it's, it's a blessing that we live in such a wonderful Christian country that they encourage good works by giving us a tax deduction for certain gifts. But that doesn't mean that you can't help out someone who's in need, even when it's not convenient to funnel it through a charity. And you're not limited to brothers and sisters either. Do good unto all men. Do good unto all men. Especially those who are of the household of faith. If we run across brothers and sisters who are in need, then it's our obligation to help them out. But if everyone else in your ecclesia has more than enough, just like you do, then you're not restricted from, from giving it to those 
in your community who are truly needy or looking out for other ecclesias across the world where brothers and sisters need help. God loves both the rich and the poor, and He wants all of us in His kingdom. The rich have more challenges, but they can overcome them. And the poor have more obstacles, but God wants to help them. Let's talk about the idea of worldliness and godliness. Here's a verse that our young people have have heard many times, but I believe that this little gem of a verse shouldn't be limited just to those in their teens. I think we can all learn something from it. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. One of the beauties, I think, of James' writing, one of the things that appeals to me so much about it is his ability to, to state clearly what should be obvious to all of us. Such as the truth that if we get too friendly with the world, we will increasingly distance ourselves from God. Spending our life in pursuit of possessions and, and pleasures is a sure recipe to becoming haggard and stressed and restless. Experiencing a kind of a frustration that no teenager would ever comprehend. You cannot be a friend of God and a friend of this world and all of its fallen values. You're cheating on God, is what he says. You're acting like an adulterer, an adulteress, if you try to maintain a relationship with the world while you're being espoused to Christ. God's a jealous God. Verse 5 says that God cares about the spirit we serve him with. And look at verse 6. That he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It takes humility to approach God. The only way to break this cycle of double-mindedness is is total submission of oneself to God. Continue reading here in verses 7 through 10. Submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you devil-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You see, self-help is, is not going to take you as far as you need to go. We need to come near to God for him to come near to us. Purify your hearts. And your mind will become centered on godliness. We sometimes call this, this double-mindedness by a different name. We sometimes call it fence-sitting. Straddling a fence allows a person to keep a foot in both places at the same time. And in a culture that insists on having a multitude of choices, like fence-straddling has never been more popular. But the downside is, it absolutely paralyzes you for making a concrete choice. Anyone who chooses to have one foot mired in the worldliness but wants to have one foot standing firm in godliness will surely fall. Lord willing, if I have time, I want to continue on the subject of today and tomorrow. You know why we always say, Lord willing? It comes right there from James. Look at it, chapter 4. 
Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanish away. For you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or do that. It's an interesting set of verses. James is, is speaking to people who are making a plan. Look at the plan they're making, right? He says they're planning a time, today or tomorrow. They're planning the location. Can, uh, we'll go into such a city. They're planning the duration, continue there a year. They're planning a course of action, we'll buy and sell. And they're planning an outcome to get gain. Looks like a pretty good plan to me. I do, I do a lot of planning in my life. I'm an, I, I do all the long-term planning in my business. And we're currently on, uh, on year three of our, our existing 10-year plan. Plan 2015, it's referred to. It replaced Plan 2005, which was a five-year plan. And that replaced Plan 2000, which was a 10-year plan. Plan 2015 comes to its conclusion on December 31st, 2015. And, and we already have vision plans for the years after that, 2025 and 2035. Is, is planning wrong? Is this, is this another topic I'm going to have to feel guilty about after having read James? No, no, no. no verse, verse 15 clears that up, right? As long as you just say, if the Lord wills, then everything's okay with the plans that you make, right? No. No, it's a little deeper than that, I think. Saying, saying Lord willing isn't some kind of magic talisman that makes all of your planning okay. Take a look at the verse in the middle, verse 14. He says, Whereas you know what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? nothing but a vapor that appeareth for a little while and then vanish away. In other words, in, in all of your planning, you have to take God's view of life into account. You have to take a true view of life into account. And that is that your life is a vapor. The question you really need to consider is, what practical difference does it make in your planning whether or not you believe that your life is a vapor? That's the real question. Do we stop planning altogether because simply you don't know that what your life is going to happen? You know, your life may be short or, or uncertain, so you shouldn't bother to plan? I don't think so. You've all heard the saying before, and I think it's true. He that fails to plan, plans to fail. I don't think that James is saying you should stop planning. James isn't encouraging us to drop out of society, to become a hermit, just sit around waiting for a little vapor of life to disappear. For James and for God, though, it matters whether or not a true view of life informs and shapes the way you think and how you speak about your plans. Your mindset matters. How do you talk about your plans? Why, Why does it matter? Because God created us not just to do things and go places with our bodies, but to have certain attitudes and convictions and verbal descriptions that reflect the truth 
a true view of life. God means for the, the truth about Him and about life to be known and, and felt and spoken, part of your reasoning and part of your planning. God wants you to keep in mind that we really have no firm substance here on earth. We're as fragile as mist, as fragile as a vapor. Keep in mind you have no, no durability. You appear just for a little while. Your time is short. You will disappear. I'm not trying to depress you. Probably succeeding, but I'm not trying to depress you. But it does matter. God says that we have to keep this view of life in mind. In verse 15, he, he tells us that the true view of life that we have in our minds and our mouths, we should have this true view as we plan for the future. God tells us two very important things about himself in verse 15. And pay attention to him. One is contained in the words, if the Lord wills, we will live. The other is contained in the rest of that sentence. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. The duration of our lives are in the hand of God. God governs how long we're going to live. We may not know how long our vapor-like life will linger in the air, but God does. Because God decides how long we live. James is trying to tell us that if this is a true view of life, then it, would, it should shape our mindset and shape our way of thinking. If we truly believe that our lives are in the hands of God and God will decide how long we live and when we die, then doesn't that change our impression of death? Worry and stress about death should decrease as our faith in this, in this belief increases. Because not only is our life in God's hands, but God is good. God wants the best for us. He controls every part of our lives, including this most important part. Turn that over to Him. Rest in the faith of His love. The other truth about God in verse 15 is that the activities and the accomplishments of our lives are also in God's hands. God governs what we accomplish. Not only are our lives themselves in God's hands, but our success is in His hands as well. If the Lord does not will, we will not do this or that. We will not buy or sell or get gain. And the stress of success and failure in what we do should also decrease when we come to really believe that truth. This doesn't give us permission to be lazy, but it should remove some of our worries because God is good. God wants to bless His children with good things. He wants to see us happy. And He's in a position to do so as He controls whether or not our plans succeed or fail. So in simple terms, God wants to make sure that we understand these two things. God governs how long you live and what you accomplish. But there's more to the issue than just that. Though. Look at the next verse, verse 16. But now you rejoice in your boastings, and such rejoicing is evil. Why does James bring up boasting all of a sudden? The root problem at play here, I think, is arrogance and pride. And that is what causes us not to look at our life with a true view. Boasting is simply the expression of that arrogance. When you don't look at life with a true view, then you begin to think that you are the one that's in control over your life. You are the one that's responsible for your own successes. 
It's through your hard works and your efforts that you've succeeded. You can even start thinking that if you take your vitamins and exercise and eat right, you can somehow control how long you live. You can start to get arrogant in the face of God, the one who really controls those things. So when we talk about today and tomorrow, when we say, Lord willing, it's not just a nice thing to say. It's the acknowledgement of an important and valuable truth about who God is and the faith that we have that He's in control of our lives, that God holds our entire life in His hand. He decides how long we live. He decides how we succeed or fail. I want to close by going back to that verse we began the week with. I want to close our thoughts on a discussion of the fatherless and the widows. Pure religion. The stuff that really matters. Is visiting the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and keeping yourself unspotted from the world. I want to first kind of define what James means by pure religion. I think that by seeing, using the word religion, he's really talking about our faith, our, our faith in Christ. This word religion is the same word that he uses in the previous verse. If you back up to verse 26, he says, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. The reason I think that James means faith in Jesus when he uses the word religion, is what comes in the next verse. See, there's no break in the flow here between 26 and 27 in chapter 2, verse 1. Look what the first verse of the next, uh, the next chapter says. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with respect of persons. I think what he's trying to say is if you're religious or if you say you have the faith of Jesus then don't bridle an unloving, lying, gossiping, cursing tongue and your faith and your religion is worthless. We talked about it already. It's the, it's the faith that saves us. But whether our faith or our religion is real or not is shown by the change it brings about in our hearts and our lives. Now, in verse 27, James gives us another very concrete example of that same point. Notice the two kind of effects that pure religion in your, in your life has. First one is practical compassion towards orphans and widows. And personal purity. Personal purity of your own life. Like, like Christ's instruction to the Pharisees of his day, we need to do the one without leaving the other undone. Too often, I'm afraid that we fall off the horse on one side or the other. Some fall off by saying, what matters is personal purity, sexual purity, financial integrity, a clean thought life, and, and on and on. But they're weak in the practical deeds of compassion for the poor and the helpless. And some fall off the horse on the other side by saying, what matters is reaching out and having compassion and helping people. And what you do with your mind and your body or uh, in your private personal life is not really significant. 
But James says that pure and undefiled religion, true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, stays on the horse. Pure religion is to to visit the orphan and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Not either or, but both. Public compassion and personal purity. Proactive steps of kindness and love and grace to those around us and protective vigilance against sin in our life. There are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that deal with protecting the poor and the oppressed. Clearly, this is an issue that's important to God. But I'm afraid we spent too much time thinking about the latter and not the former. I fear we've been too concerned about personal purity that we've neglected this important instruction from God. We've been too concerned about keeping ourselves unspotted from the world that we've neglected the requirement to go out there and help people for fear that somehow we might get dirty in the process. I fear we've become so concerned about not sinning, we haven't done enough good works. And I think I can prove it in three simple statements. First, before we go to sleep tonight, 30,000 children will die of starvation. Second, most of us don't give a damn. And third, and what's worse, is that right now, you're more uncomfortable with the fact that I swore than the fact that 30,000 kids are going to die tonight. Do the one, and don't leave the other undone. If our religion is real, if our faith is alive, we need to do something about the suffering and the pain that goes on around us. I don't need to remind you about the the millions of children in sub-Saharan Africa who are made orphans each year by the rampant spread of AIDS in that country. I don't need to remind you about the millions of children in Eastern Europe who are abandoned due to poverty. It's easy. It's easy to see where you can help once you start looking. I just want us to try looking. God has been concerned about the fatherless and the widows since the beginning of time. Although his methods have changed over the years, his, his message is still the same. Look what he says in, in Exodus. He said, You shall not afflict any, any widow or fatherless child. If thou afflict them in any wise and they cry it all unto me, I will surely hear their cry. My wrath shall wax, wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. The law of Moses simply punished you for not doing what's right. The law of Christ encourages us to be righteous. Which one's going to work? God's tried the stick. He's now trying the carrot. But if we don't respond better than the Israelites did, who knows what he's going to try next? I've, I've brought up a lot of things this morning, and I've lectured you about trying harder to live this life that James describes. My goal was to try to push you, try to push myself out of our comfort zones and into the kind of service that James calls us to. If I've offended you, I, I pray that you'll get over it quickly, but don't forget the message quite as quickly. 
I want to leave you with one simple suggestion about how to care for the fatherless and the widows. It's a verse that Jesus spoke in Luke 14. It's really captured my attention lately, and it's convicted my soul. I hope this verse moves you as much as it did me. Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends. Don't invite your brothers. Don't invite your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So you can see this class really wasn't about this and that. This whole week has really been more about God and you. The Father who has called us to live lives of faith. And James gives us plenty of, plenty of practical examples of what it means to live lives of faith. My prayer will continue that these classes have helped us all see James' message a little clearer. And we all leave here a little more motivated to follow that message. Thanks. On behalf of everyone here, I would like to thank our brother Jeff for bringing some very good, thought-provoking classes to us this week. We will have a short break. It is 9.46 by my watch and uh, by the clock back there. We're to be back in our seats by 10. Thank you.